Lord God, we love you so much. We praise you for your astounding love for us. We thank you that you are the initiator in this relationship of love. That before we even thought to seek you out, you were already calling us to you, preparing a place for us. We thank you that it wasn't by our merits that you poured out your love on us, that we weren't deserving of your love, but instead, because you are a God of love who's gracious, full of compassion and mercy and slow to anger, you loved us first, and we praise you for that. And God, I pray that as we look at this text in 1 John this morning, that your Holy Spirit would do a work to help us understand the depth of this love. Um, my, my words alone are insufficient to convey the weightiness and the beauty of this truth. And God, I pray that as we look at your love, that we would be not only astounded at what a God we serve, but that we would be changed, that our church would be a church of people who truly love well. God, would you help us lay aside our grievances, our differences, our hurt feelings, our bitterness, our pride, our desire for self-preservation, would you let us just lay those things aside as we seek to honor you, a God who loved us so well by loving others in a similar way. So Lord, change us, minister to us in this time that we have together. Amen. I want you to open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 4. I'm super glad that you're here with us this morning. And if you're tuning in via live stream, we're really glad that you're with us in that way as well. And I know Tim already mentioned it, but just in case you walked in a little bit late, after our service today, we're going to have our annual meeting right here. Uh, we will dismiss you to grab your kids if you have kids and then invite you to come back. It'll be an hour long. We'll, start, we'll try and uh, honor that time frame. And if you're not a member or you're even just a guest, a visitor this morning, I invite you to stay. Stick around and see what our church is about. And we would love to have you get sort of a, a glimpse into kind of the inner workings. Maybe you're relatively new to Maricopa Springs and you're like, eh, annual meeting sounds boring. I still encourage you to stay. We would love for you to be part of that time as we reflect back on what God has done over the last year and we look ahead with anticipation to what we eagerly expect him to do in the year ahead. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. And before we read that, there's something really beautiful about the innate sense of love that a little child has in the way that they so naturally express it. I mean, up here from the pulpit, I joke a lot that if you want to know that sin is in human nature, just look at like a two-year-old. And that's true. But you could also see a reflection of the beauty of God's gracious love in the action of a little kid too. I've been trying to get my office cleaned up and settled. We moved into a new house recently and I have an office in there. And I, I struggle with papers in general, but I have this one box that I just can't figure out what to do with. And I, I normally just love throwing papers away. It makes me feel like I'm actually moving towards some semblance of organization and cleanliness. But I just can't bring myself to figure out what to do with this box. I like want to throw it away, but I don't want to throw it away. And the reason why it's so tough is because it's this box of little 
notes and keepsakes that my children have handed to me over the last 11 years of being a daddy. And most of them are so silly. There's no reason to keep them. They're these hideously ugly stick figures with poorly spelled words on crumpled pieces of paper that have like macaroni and cheese on them. But I just can't bring myself to throw them away. Like there's a sense in which they're precious to me. And the the stack of little love notes reminds me actually of our passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning. 1 John chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. Because in some really beautiful, precious ways, little kids reflect well the generous, giving love that we find in God. You know, everyone knows little kids can be selfish. One of the first words they learn is mine. But have you ever noticed how eager kids are to, like, give their love away? Uh, my, My kids will not let me leave the house without a hug. Like, sometimes it even frustrates me. In any picture that they draw, they like to sneak in mommy and daddy somewhere in the picture. They delight to have us tuck them in at night because they like to be generous with their hearts and their time. They, over the years, have given me all sorts of weird treasures and garbage that they've found in various places that they think is somehow special to them. But they don't want to keep it for themselves. They want to share it with me. And again, most of the stuff they've given me is, is basically kind of trash. But it's the, it's the exemplification of a consistent thoughtfulness for me, for my wife, for our family. Their consistent willingness to sacrifice something that they find to be a treasure or precious in order to give it up, to give it to me. You know, their thoughtfulness that in any picture they want to sneak in mommy and daddy. And I see some of you smiling. I mean, if you have little kids or you interact with them on a regular basis, you know what I'm talking about. And it's a beautiful definition of love. Let me give it to you this way. To sacrifice what you find precious for the sake of someone else. To sacrifice what you find precious for the sake of someone else. So often, just on a day-to-day basis, my children actually exemplify that. And as we read these two verses from 1 John this morning, this is exactly what we're going to find as we look at this picture of our God. We're going to see the generous, loving heart of God who sacrificed what was most precious to him for our sake. God who gave up his greatest treasure so that we might understand the depth of his love for us. I want to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, and then we're going to look specifically at 9 and 10. So read along with me. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We really need to start this morning by formulating a definition of the word love. And if you've been around the last couple of months or you've been tuning into our live stream, then you know I've done this repeatedly as we've made our way through 1 John. But I'm not embarrassed to do it again. And here's why. Because in your daily life, as you drive by billboards and you listen to the radio and you watch TV and you see ads on your phone and you engage with people through social media and you go to your workplace, you are daily being given a definition of love from a secular godless world. And so I don't find it problematic to stand here again on Sunday and offer to you a definition of love. And the reason why this is so important is because if we're going to formulate an understanding of what love is, and verse 8 tells us God is love, then the best place to go to get a definition for love is from the source itself, from God who is love, from God who reveals to us what love is. Love finds its origin in God, which means that he has the authority to define that word for us, to help us understand what it means. And so, love is not some feeling that makes you feel good. I would call that intoxication. Love is not about what satisfies your desires or your appetites. I would call that desire. Love is not about what attracts you. I would call that romance. When someone says love is love, that's just a meaningless, nonsensical statement. What, What does that even mean? You can't define something by its own word. That's unhelpful. Instead, the definition that we see in these verses is that to love is to sacrifice something that you find precious for the sake of somebody else. Or as the author John Stott says, love is the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. If you're married or if you have children, then you, you do know then that love is so much more than a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's so much more than just desire or attraction. That kind of love won't get you through long years of marriage and difficulty together. There's so much more to love than that. And this is what we see in these verses. John explains it to us. He says, we know God loves us because God gets a warm, fuzzy feeling in his heart when he looks at us. We know God loves us because he was fiercely attracted to us because we're so wonderfully attractive. No, right? That's not what it says. God showed his love for us by giving his son giving his most treasured possession. God's love for us was never about feelings. It was about his dedication to us. God shows his love by sacrificing on our behalf. 
God showed his love by stooping down to our level, into our sinful, broken world that we made that way in order to lift us up out of this tragic story that we have written for ourselves. And we say that God did this for his glory. I mean, if you stick around our church long enough, or hopefully any church long enough, you're going to hear people say, God gave his son for his glory. And that is absolutely true. But I hope you understand, God was completely glorious before he ever gave his son. He did not need to do that to add to his glory. As if loving mankind made God more glorious. In fact, Jesus says in John 5.41 that he doesn't receive glory from people. God is already glorious. Now, of course, this act of love does bring God great glory. But you have to understand that God acting in this way Loving towards us was entirely an act of his generous, giving, sacrificial nature. God did it because God is love. And for God, it was all sacrifice. And for us, it was all benefit. God gains very little, if nothing at all, from calling you his child. But you gain everything by being called a child of God. And that's what kind of love God has for us. If you want to know what love likes, specifically, if you want to know how much God loves you, then look at Christ who gave up glory with God eternal in heaven to come and sacrifice his life to redeem you. Now John says in verse 9 that God's love was made manifest among us. That word means it became a reality It took on a definite definite form. God does not speak some big game about love and then fail to follow through on it. God is not a God who boasts largely about how much he loves, but then when push comes to shove, he's nowhere to be found. God's love is active. It's weighty. It has momentum. It's real. It's visible. It's tangible in Jesus Christ. Now, I think there's two ways that we see this primarily. First, in verse 9, we're told that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. How many people in our world are wondering just what it means to have a satisfying, fulfilling life? And they can't seem to find an answer to that question. What this verse tells us is that in the life of Christ, we see manifest God's intention for human life. You want to know what God's intention for your life is? It's that you might have life in God. And that life specifically looks like love. God's love demonstrates what real life is supposed to be like. And in particular, it's shown to us, it's made visible, it's made manifest in the life of Christ Jesus. In the example that he gives to us. Jesus, let's, let's look at a couple of these. Jesus forgave the very people who spoke ill of him, who abused him, and ultimately murdered him. You want to know what life looks like? It looks like loving somebody well enough who, although they have hurt you, abused you, and spoken ill of you, 
you forgive them. Jesus gave love to unlovable people through this great act of forgiveness. Jesus held no grudges. As I use that word grudge, does any face come to mind? Anybody that you would really rather not bump into at the grocery store? When his friend and his follower, Peter, betrayed him, I mean, Peter, who said to Jesus, when they all abandon you, Jesus, and they all bail on you because they're sissies, I will die with you. That Peter, then, when it was his moment to be pressed, said, I don't even know the guy. And Jesus, even though Peter abandoned him and betrayed him, he didn't hold a grudge against Peter. When people cheered Jesus on as he entered into Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, exclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And then those same people only a week later were crying out before Pontius Pilate, crucify him. Jesus didn't seek to repay them evil for the evil that they did to him. No, instead, he died for their sake that they might be reconciled to God. Jesus was joyful instead of resentful. He was gracious instead of petty. He was patient instead of quarrelsome. We know God's love because we can look at the life of Jesus, his example for us, and we can say that is what life is supposed to look like. That is love. That is what God intends for me. So that sin doesn't end up getting the best of us and the freedom and the love of God might rule in our hearts. Friends, because God loves us, every Christian should be striving to be like Jesus. Because it is through Christ that we have life. And that life is love. Jesus sacrificed for our good so that we might see how we can live a life sacrificing for the good of others, out of love for them. But the other way in which John points us to Jesus to understand God's love, I think is found in verse 10. It tells us that God loves us and therefore he sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. I hope your version of Bible, whichever you're using, I use the ESV, I hope it uses the word propitiation or atoning sacrifice or something like that. Because that word propitiation in particular is actually a very important word. It's an old word. It's probably not one that you use from day to day as you're talking with people. But it's still an important word. Embedded in this word is the concept of wrath. Propitiation means specifically to make atonement so that wrath will no longer be there. One of the most astounding things about God's love for us is that he has every right to be wrathful and angry towards us for our sin. God is not mildly disturbed or slightly disappointed with the state of mankind. He is deeply disturbed. Go read God's judgment on earth in Revelation And you're going to begin to understand that God is actually furiously upset with mankind. And he intends to fix mankind's injustice 
and sin and evil. God does not tolerate the corruption of sin and evil. He is wrathful towards it. We are sinners and God owes us nothing. If you were listening to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you thought that for it's by grace that you've been saved and it's not of yourselves and you thought, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good actually. I think I deserve it. You are deeply wrong. We all together have rebelled against God. We have trashed his creation with our evil. We've made a mockery of the name of God in the way that we mistreat one another. Mankind lives in this beautiful world that God has made for his glory and for our benefit. And at the same time, we shake our fist at God and we are anti-God. Even Christians, in the way that we often live our lives... We are anti-God. We disturb the peace of what God has made good. We hate one another. We mistreat one another. We selfishly seek our own desires at the expense of other people. The default mode of the human heart is sin. And that upsets God. It disturbs him. It angers God. And so do not kid yourself. You do not deserve God's love. You don't deserve it. Worse than that, not only do we do sin and evil, we also excuse our sin and evil. We shrug it off. We blame it on other people. We trivialize it. We dismiss it as if it's no big deal. We get super offended when somebody sins against us. And then when we go in sin and somebody says, you wronged me, we're like, that's eh, not a big deal. We're hypocrites, every single one of us. And it gets even worse than that because a lot of times we sin against God, we ruin what God has made good, and then we turn to God and we say, how dare you, God, that you would be God and you would judge me and you wouldn't accept me the way that I am and you wouldn't love me. And the reason we have to be honest about these things is because John explains to us one of the ways that we know God's love for us is that he sent his son to die for us, to be a propitiation for our sin, to sacrifice himself for our good, even though we are grotesque and awful, offensive sinners in the sight of God. You cannot understand the depth of God's love for you until you first understand how intensely unlovable you are by nature. And if sin is no big deal, then the death of Jesus is no big deal. If you didn't desperately need for God to do something to bring you close to him, then there was no point in Jesus dying for you. If our sins didn't do much to offend God, then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross doesn't tell us much about God's love for us. John wants us to understand the love of God is great because while we were totally unworthy to be loved and accepted by God, Jesus came to willingly be a sacrifice for us. He bore all of God's anger towards sin so that we might understand God's love for us. God is not angry with you for your sin. He no longer has wrath towards you for your sin. Christ bore it all for you in your place. 
God hates sin. He's angry about sin, but he knew that you could never bear the consequences of that on your own. And so instead, he took it upon himself to bear the consequences of that for you so that instead of God's wrath, we might know God's love. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're embraced. You're beloved. You are a child of God, not because you deserved it, but because Christ did this for you. I've been praying really hard that the Spirit of God would give us tender hearts to comprehend the beauty of this. I literally was like, I don't even want to preach these verses because as soon as I begin to preach them, I'm going to ruin them. Like maybe we should just read them and send everybody home. Block off your calendar and just sit in the beauty of this. John desperately wants us to understand in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. He sent his beloved son to be a cleansing, atoning, appeasing sacrifice so that we would see how much God loves us. Let me say it again. Let me reiterate how intense this is. Sin is hostility towards God. It is violence towards his tenderness. It is the chaos that we bring into his peace. Sin is rebellion against his authority that refuses to acknowledge that he is Lord. It is a perversion of all that he has made good. It's pollution of what is pure. Sin is willful folly in the face of wisdom when we know better. It's disintegration of what God has majestically knit together. And in all of that, think about this, somehow, even though we are guilty of these things, we manage somehow to convince ourselves that we are a victim. That we live in a world that, you know, is broken because God himself is the cruel agent doing this to me. He's the one who made this story tragic. Again, we create this misery and then we shake our fists at God and we blame him for how bad it is. And even though we do that, God, in his unfathomable love, in his ceaseless mercy, in his everlasting kindness, still gives up his most precious possession, his own beloved son, in order that we might be forgiven, redeemed, called out of that, embraced by God, given the peace of friendship. For a moment, I want to just ask you to sit before God with a repentant heart. <laughs> because maybe you've even been sitting here and you're like, I'm not really like that. Doesn't that prove the point? Some of us in this room, some of us tuning in via live stream, I think we need to simply just humble ourselves for a moment. Because in our hearts lacks or, or lurks maybe a pride that says, I don't, I don't actually need that kind of grace from God. I'm doing pretty well here. Or maybe if you're a little bit more honest, a little bit more willing to acknowledge your brokenness, you realize that in your heart you do have bitterness. You do have anger towards people. You are indeed a selfish person. You, you have unforgiveness. You do withhold yourself from other people. Maybe you realize in a moment of honesty, just before 
the Spirit of God in you right now, you realize, I do have grudges in my heart. I think that I'm better than other people. I am, in fact, petty and selfish. I'm not quite as good as I lead people to believe I am. And I just want to remind you, and I I pray the Spirit of God will remind you, that if God loved you so much, then far be it from you to withhold that love from somebody else. If you have understood with your head and your heart the depth to which God has gone to redeem you out of your sin, then I know that the Holy Spirit right now in this moment is going to convict you, is going to lead you back into the presence of God to be repentant before God. If Christ is your Lord and you look to him and you, you see his bloody and bruised body crucified for your good, God's great gift of love, his own precious beloved son, and you understand that that was done for you, then you have surrendered any right you thought you had to treat other people poorly, to withhold your love from others. And so may the Spirit of God convict us of our sins towards one another and our sins ultimately towards God in withholding our love from others. Let us not dare to speak of being children of God among whom his love has been manifest while we fail to be people who manifest the love of God in our lives towards others. Let us not grieve the generous heart of God receiving from him the love that we never deserved while we withhold that love that we ought to give to others in our lives. And so since God has sacrificed so much to love us, let us also sacrifice ourselves to love other people. We're actually going to get into that more next week because I think the application for this concept really comes more in verses 11 and 12. So let me just bring us to a close with the story of Abraham. I think most people know this story. God calls a man named Abraham, and Abraham doesn't have any kids, and so God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you a son, specifically. And he's going to be your precious, beloved son. And Abraham waits, and finally, this son of the promise, Isaac, is born to him. And of course, Abraham is rejoicing. He's 100 years old. And he finally has this son of the promise with his wife, Sarah. And then God returns to Abraham and God asks Abraham to do the impossible. God says to Abraham, I want you to take your only son, your beloved son, and I want you to sacrifice him on the top of this mountain to me. And in that story, it's as if God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, do you really love me? Abraham, do you love me even more than your most precious possession? If so, Abraham, then I want you to actually prove your love for me and do the impossible. Sacrifice your son for my sake. And of course, the story ends with our God being incredibly gracious 
And he provides for Abraham a ram caught in the bushes. And so Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice his son Isaac. Instead, he just sacrifices the ram. And it turns out the whole thing was only a test. And Abraham passes the test. God wanted to see if Abraham was fully committed. If Abraham was absolutely true in his love and devotion to God. And at the very end of the story, the way God speaks to Abraham, it's almost as if God says to Abraham, Abraham, now I know how much you love me. Abraham, now I'm certain of your devotion to me. You have demonstrated the depth of your love that you were willing to sacrifice that which is most precious to you for my sake. And of course, the whole story points us to Jesus. You know where I'm going with this. The point is for us to see in that story the same kind of love that John displays for us in our verses from 1 John today. In the death of Jesus on the cross, you and I can now say to God with absolute certainty, God, now I know the depth of your love for me. You didn't ask me to sacrifice my son. No, you sacrificed your son that I would be convinced that your most precious possession is something you're willing to give up because you love me. You were willing to sacrifice what is most precious to you for my sake. We didn't deserve this gift. We didn't earn this kindness. But God was willing to give it so that we could comprehend the depth of his love for us. And if you've ever wondered whether God loves you, look at Jesus Christ. Bleeding, mocked, crucified, shamed, scorned. God's Son suffering for your sake. And believe that God has withheld nothing in order to show the depth of his love for you. And Abraham's story has to be our story in a way. And this is the truth that John has visited time and time again as we've made our way through this letter. And again, we're going to look at this in more detail next week. But for now, I leave you with just an appetizer. You must also endure the same test that Abraham endured. When Jesus told his followers to take up their cross, to surrender themselves, to daily die to themselves and follow Jesus... He wasn't asking you to take your precious only child and sacrifice it on the cross. He was asking you to put yourself on the altar. How much do you love God? Enough in response to his love for you that you would climb up on the altar and lay your own precious life down for God? Jesus was saying to us, when he said, deny yourself and follow me, he was, he was essentially saying, I've loved you. And I've shown you my love. At the greatest personal price. And so now will you show me your love for me in response? If we're honest, what's most precious to us is ourself. And we're, call, we're called to climb up on that altar 
to lay down our lives as a sacrifice. And in Jesus, we can confidently say, God, now I know how much you love me. You gave up your most precious possession for my sake. And where we should move towards is then to follow that up by saying, so now, Father, let me respond to your love for me and let me show you how much I love you. By your grace, let me lay down my life. Let me give it up. Let me sacrifice it because I love you. In those daily and difficult sacrifices that are self-death, those little things, considering others better than yourself, blessing your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, forgiving those who wrong you, walking in joy and in peace instead of bitterness and anger, offering hospitality and kindness in place of hostility, committed to the good of others because God has shown his commitment to your good. John tells us God showed his love for us by sending his son into the world. Not only so that he would die so we could see the depth of his love, but also so that we might walk in that same love. Let me pray. God, we cannot do this apart from your grace. And so we ask, Father, that that you would fill us with this kind of life. That you would fill us with love that spills over into a life of loving others. And Lord, we are in awe of you. We thank you that you gave up your most precious possession for our sake. I pray that you would help us to honor you in response to that beautiful truth. In Christ's name, amen.